Good morning, everyone. My name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as lead pastor. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. You've probably heard by now that we have a target date for reopening. We're really excited about this. Sunday, June 28th, we plan to have our 9 a.m. and our 11 a.m. services right here for you. And I know that each of you has some important decisions to make about the timing of your return. And we're going to have a lot of information coming your way that will help you make that decision. I'm really grateful that we have the technology to offer these online services during this time. I'm thankful for the team, Chris and Rick and others who have made this possible. Really grateful. It's a gift. But I'm also fully convinced that it's no replacement for physically gathering together in one space. I'm so excited about that. And my feeling is, is that when we gather that Sunday morning, June 28th, and we come into this space and we lift our voices and we sing together, all of us are going to realize we missed the gathering more than we even knew. And so I cannot wait for that Sunday. Well, this morning we're starting a new series called Union. And uh, recently I read this book called Union with Christ by Rankin Wilborn. I really want to recommend this book. You can go on Amazon and you can get it. This really shaped the way I began to think about what it means to be united with Christ. And I'll be using some of the content from this book to help us in this four-week series. In this book, he says that nothing is more central or basic to the Christian faith than union and communion with Christ. John Murray, who wrote about union with Christ, he said that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. And Constantine Campbell said that union with Christ is the webbing that holds it all together. Union with Christ means that you, the believer, simply stated, it means that you are in Christ and that Christ is in you. Not just that you are with Christ, near Christ, around Christ, for Christ, about Christ, but you are in Christ, united to him. If you ask a lot of Christians, who is Jesus and what has he done for you? I think the most common answers that you will hear is that Jesus loved me and Jesus forgave my sins. Jesus saved me. He rescued me. Maybe some of you would say Jesus healed me. He's delivered me. But I think not a lot of Christians would actually say that Jesus is united to me and that I am united to him. However, in the New Testament, we find hundreds of references to the believer being united with Christ. And in union with Christ is both mysterious and mystical, very hard to explain, but also deeply personal and practical. It can change so many things about our lives. The, just, in the, just in the New Testament alone, just in Paul's writings alone, here's what we learn about union with Christ. I'm going to read a bunch of things to you real quick, so stick with me. Believers are created in Christ. We are crucified with him. We are buried with him, baptized into Christ and his death, united with him in his resurrection, and seated with him in the heavenly places. Christ is formed in believers and dwells in our hearts. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is in us, and we are in him. The church is one flesh with Christ, and believers gain Christ and are found in him. Furthermore, in Christ, here's what the Bible says, we are called, made alive, created anew, adopted, justified, sanctified, and someday glorified all in Christ. Wow. <laughs> and Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, check this out. Look what he says. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, who has done what? Look, who has blessed us, the believers, in Christ, not apart from Christ, but he blesses us in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places. Do you know what this means? It's, it's pretty remarkable. It means that every blessing the believer receives, every blessing you have received and every blessing I have received flows out of the blessing of being united to Christ. In this season where we've been uh, facing the challenge of COVID-19, we've had families in our church, in our community who have faced financial crisis. We have a benevolence fund and we've been able to come along some of these families and, and help them and provide financial support with them. And, and when someone gives you money to help you meet a need, the money is the initial blessing, but the money is what helps you get the additional blessings, the blessings of food, household supplies, or the blessing of be, being able to pay a, a bill. It's from the money, from the gift of money, flows all the other blessings. And it's true here that union with Christ, being united to Christ, is the blessing from which all other blessings flow in our life. And so what we're going to do in this series is we're going to look at four of the blessings four of what I think are the greatest blessings that we receive because we've been united to Christ. And this morning, we're going to talk about the blessing or the gift of a new identity, that because we've been united to Christ, we have a new identity. Ralph Ellison, who is the author of the novel The Invisible Man, was once asked, would you say that the search for identity is primarily an American theme? And he answered, it is the American theme. And I would take it to another level. I would suggest the search for identity is the human theme. Think about the movies that we watch and the books that we read, the stories that we love. At the heart of almost every single one of them is a character who is searching for identity from Luke Skywalker to Jason Bourne to Princess Elsa to superheroes like Spider-Man and Black Panther and Superman. Every single one of them is on a search trying to identify themselves, trying to establish their identity and answer this question, who am I? And they go searching, looking around them because we all find our identity outside of ourselves. We we can't just find it inside of ourselves. We can't just simply give it to ourselves. So we, we go through life looking to find and form an identity. And here's what we do to try to form our identity. We unite ourselves to other things or other people. See, union is not just a, a Christian thing. Union is a human thing. Every human being is uniting himself or herself to something or someone in the pursuit of identity. And let me give you some examples. When kids learn that they're great at something, they, they begin to identify themselves that way. They even begin to introduce themselves that way. It could be an athletic ability. Uh, it could be different skills and talents. Some people unite themselves to their level of education, and that's how they identify themselves, and it's right there in their official title. Some people fully unite themselves to their beliefs or to their ideologies, uh, to a fashion style, to specific clothing brands, and they wear them, and that becomes their identity. Some of us are deeply united to our sports teams and we're passionate about them and, and they become a part of who we are or a political party or a religious organization, careers, friends, family, lovers. Look at somebody's bio on their Instagram or on their Twitter and you'll see what they've united themselves to. And here's what this means. Every human being lives to discover, create, build, sustain, defend, protect, or promote who they are their identity. And ultimately, apart from Christ, it's all on us. But one of the greatest gifts that union with Christ brings to us is a new identity that's not of our own making and not of our own effort and not of our own work, a new identity that's received by faith 
because of what Christ has done. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a passage uh, out of a letter that uh, was written to a church in Rome, written by a man named Paul, who I've already mentioned a couple times. Paul was a persecutor of the early church who was radically converted uh, with an encounter with Jesus Christ, and he became a leader of the early church and wrote much of the New Testament. And in this specific letter, we call it Romans, Paul is uh, making a case for our need for Jesus, but then also he is uh, explaining what Jesus did about that need. And by the time we get to this passage in Romans chapter 8, he's beginning to talk about what are the benefits of the gospel. In Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at the first four verses, but I'll just read two at this point. Paul writes these words. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Those first six words are some of the most beautiful words in all of scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation. What is condemnation? What does that mean? What does it feel like? I think we've all experienced it. I mean, maybe you were, maybe you were picked last at recess and you felt the shame that came with that. And that's an experience of condemnation. Maybe you've been left out. Maybe you've had friends that have um, just kind of quit on your relationship. Maybe you've been dumped. Maybe you've been mocked. Maybe you've been overlooked. Maybe you've been abandoned, attacked, or judged, and it's caused you to question your own value and worth. That's what it feels like to be condemned. See, to be condemned is to live with this unshakable, unavoidable sense that I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not successful enough, known enough, respected enough, pretty enough, famous enough, religious enough. And the million-dollar question that I think everybody's asking is, how do I get free from that? How is it possibly true that there can be no condemnation? And Paul answers this question in the next two verses of this passage. In verses 3 and 4, look at what he says. He says, for God has done God has done, God is the one who acts on our behalf, for God has done what the law or the rules weakened by the flesh could not do. Paul's saying we couldn't save ourselves, God had to step in and do something. By sending his own son, here's what God did, by sending Jesus, his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So instead of condemning us, he condemned sin in the flesh because Jesus became our sin. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, don't, don't tune out here because there's two amazing life-changing things that we learn here. And the first is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he chose to unite himself to us. Paul says it here. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Jesus came to unite himself to humankind, to our sin, to our shame, to our sickness, to our brokenness, to our mess. Now listen, look around. Watch the news. Scroll through your Twitter feed or, or you don't even have to look around, just look inside. We're, we've been so reminded in these weeks of the brokenness, the sin, the things about us that don't honor God and the ways that we treat others and the way we speak of others and the way that we respond to situations when you look at all that mess, it's so easy to lose hope. But please, as you're looking at all that mess, also remind yourself of this beautiful truth. Jesus Christ chose to unite himself to that. He united himself to that, and it cost him so much. Christian, don't ever lose your wonder of that, that Jesus would unite himself to you.
Jesus, with his life, he represented us before the Father. He lived the perfect sinless life we couldn't live. Jesus, with his death, he represented us before the Father. The substitute sacrificial sacrifice, he united himself to us. That's what this means, number one. But number two, it also means this. Because he chose to unite himself to us, we can now be united to him, to his wholeness and to his perfection, freely received. So how do we respond? We place our faith in Jesus. And here's the big idea this morning, that faith is finding your identity in Christ and nothing else. Faith is finding your identity in Christ first and above all else. Placing our faith in Jesus means that we identify with his life, with his death, with his resurrection, and with his ascension. And here's how Paul describes it in one of his other letters to a church in Colossae. Uh, in chapter 3, verses 3 through 4 of Colossians 3, he says, For you have died. He's not speaking of natural death, of course, because then he wouldn't be writing to people who are naturally dead. He's talking about something more profound, more mysterious, more spiritual. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, speaking of the future return of Christ, then you will also appear with him in glory. And this is a rich, rich passage. But what I want to point out is that what Paul is suggesting here is so countercultural because he's saying things like you die to live. You lose yourself to find yourself. You hide yourself in another. And society tells us you don't hide yourself. You flaunt yourself. You don't lose yourself for someone else's good. You've got to promote yourself, even if it costs others. The message from society is that the real you, your identity, is either out there somewhere to be found, or it's deep inside of you to be pulled out. That the path to human flourishing is found in discovering and expressing that version of you, and no one can tell you otherwise. And that's why some of the greatest values in our world today are things like individualism, self-actualization, and self-expression. But the Bible suggests something very, very different. The Bible suggests that the real you, your true identity, is not found out there, searching all over, looking to find yourself. It's not found by looking deeper into yourself, but it's found in your union with Christ, uniting yourself with Christ. But so many of us look to so many other things. And not just people who wouldn't call themselves Christians, but Christians too struggle with this continually, daily. We are daily uniting ourselves to other things. Yes, Christ, yes, Christ did this for me. And yes, I'm united with Christ. But also, I, this is what I really want to be known for. This is the hill I'll really die on. This is what I'm most passionate about. And, and, and as we start to get this to an end here, I want to suggest that there's two main problems uh, that, that appear in our lives when we unite ourselves to other things apart from Christ. Okay, two main problems. The first one is this. The freedom it seems to give you is fleeting. It's fleeting. The freedom is a mirage. It's not real. See, unlimited freedom actually has negative impact in our lives. Barry Schwartz, who's an American psychologist, he did a TED Talk, pretty well-known TED Talk, on the paradox of choice. And he concluded his talk with the illustration of a fish in a fishbowl. And he said, how free is that fish? It's confined. Yes, it's, it can feel like it's trapped. But to remove all the restraints and to shatter the fishbowl would not bring freedom. It would bring death. And then he suggests, this happens also when the metaphorical fishbowls in our lives are shattered. His point being, and I don't know that he's a believer, but his point is that there is actually freedom in restraint. There's actually freedom in restriction. 
that protects us and provides for us. You think of a kite who is attached to a string and imagine that Mr. Kite is like, I don't like this string anymore. This string is holding me down. And he sees birds flying. He sees other things. And he's like, if I could just get loose from this string, then I would really be free. And this kite wiggles free from this string. And you know what would happen. The kite would quickly fall to the ground because the string was there for its good. Now, here's what I'm saying. Some limitations, or what they seem to be limitations, they actually bring life. They help us flourish. And if there's a God who designed everything, and I believe there is, if he's the designer, then he also has all the right to be the definer of our limitations and how we should live our lives. And not in a way to suppress who we are, but so we can be fully ourselves and experience the flourishing that he intended for us. Some parameters actually protect us. And in the metaphor, the illustration of the kite and the string, sometimes the things that seem to hold us down actually hold us up. Unlimited freedom can destroy us. But also, unlimited freedom can lead us to paralysis and second-guessing. I remember growing up, and there was three channels. There was NBC, CBS, and ABC. And if we, had a, if we were really lucky, sometimes we could get Fox. We had, to, we had to switch something on the TV, and I remember it was always a little grainy, always hard to get. Nowadays, you turn your TV on, and if you have cable, or if you have Netflix, or Amazon Prime, or whatever it is that you're using uh, to entertain yourself, the options are endless. But when there was only three channels, it wasn't that hard to make a choice. And now that there's 3,000 channels, it's paralysis. It's paralysis by analysis. There's so many choices. And when we live in a world where there's unlimited freedom is how we can define ourselves and create our own identity, it actually is not leading us to freedom. It's binding us up, and it's leading us to paralysis and second-guessing. What should I do? Did I do the right thing? What about that option? Have I done enough? And it never brings rest. So the freedom is fleeting. But secondly, the second main problem is this. The pressure is crushing, is crushing. It brings greater anxiety, the pressure to define yourself on your own and keep it up. Have I done enough to maintain this identity? Am I living up to my own expectations, the expectations of the others? And there's something exhausting about trying to maintain your own identity by running around, frantically uniting yourself to different things, hoping that you've united yourself to the right things. And then once something isn't good for you anymore, then you disunite and then you unite to this. And it's exhausting. There's a scene in Alice in Wonderland where the Red Queen says, now here you see, it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast as that. Life feels that way when you're trying to form your own identity apart from Christ. It's exhausting, finding and forming your own identity. The other reason the pressure is crushing is because it brings greater conflict in our lives. And here's what I mean, and listen carefully to this. Whatever you unite yourself to, you'll fight for. Whatever matters most to you, whatever your heart loves most, you'll die for that thing. You'll give yourself to the thing. You have to defend it. You, so here's what happens. You actually become enslaved to that thing. That thing becomes a master to you. It has power over you. And now you serve it. You defend it. You fight for it. You will die for it. To, and you will die for the things that give you a sense of self. And you will fight with people who disagree. And to be honest, we see that happening in really painful ways in our world right now. So there's a freedom that is fleeting, there's a pressure that is crushing, how does union with Christ solve these problems? And I'll finish. Number one, instead of a freedom that is fleeting, Jesus brings a freedom that lasts. He brings us rest and contentment. He does this in two ways. Number one, he clarifies what matters. 
See, I want to be very careful about this. You might be listening to me and think, oh, so we're not supposed to express the unique things about our identity, our talents, our gifts, our ethnicity, our race. We're just supposed to not, none of that matters. That's not what I'm saying at all. That stuff matters very, very much. Uh, the other things about your identity are not lost or obliterated when you unite yourself with Christ. And we know this because in Revelation chapter 7, John, the apostle John, gets this glimpse into heaven, and there are people surrounding the throne singing praises to God, and he says they're from every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. And so we don't lose those things just because we've been united to Christ. They're not eliminated. They're simply prioritized. Now we have a greatest source of our identity. And instead of those other things that we unite ourselves to in our lives, instead of those things being a replacement for Jesus, which they can never do, they'll always leave us dissatisfied, angry, upset, unsure. Instead of them being a replacement for Jesus, here's what those things now become. They become one way that you can beautifully express who you are in Christ. So think about all the things you're good at. Think about who you are, your family traits, your ethnicity, your race, all of those things. Those things are just beautiful ways that you can express who you are in Christ. You don't lose those things. You don't lay those things down. But those things are not your primary source of identity because you are in Christ, now free to express yourself in those ways, in a way that blesses others and honors God. Union with Christ solves this problem because Jesus brings us freedom that lasts, but also because Jesus Christ performed for you and you are in him and you are established before the Father, approved and accepted based on Jesus' performance. Earlier this year, before COVID uh, changed our lives, we were able to take a family vacation down to Disney. I want to show you a picture of my youngest daughter. She's, um, here she is greeting a couple of the Disney characters that she loves so much. She was so excited to see them. You can see in these pictures the smile on her face, the excitement. In this book by Rankin Wilborn, he talks about one of his friends who worked at Disney and was one of the people who would dress up like characters. And the guy was saying that once you put that Mickey Mouse outfit on, no matter who you were, what you had done, what kind of a day you had had, whether you're a good person, bad person, everybody saw you, all the children especially, of course, they saw you as Mickey. And when they ran to you and you got the welcome and the warmth and the love because of who you were, so to speak, inside. This is what it means to be in Christ. We are covered in Christ. And so when the Father sees us, we get the warmth, the welcome, the love, and the acceptance by him that Jesus earned and secured for us. This is what it means to be in Christ. And if this is true, and I believe it is, then you can hear these words and love these words that Paul wrote, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. On January 8, 1956, a young missionary, Jim Elliott, he was 28 years old at the time, he and four of his missionary partners and friends were martyred in the jungles of Ecuador. They had gone to reach people who had never heard the gospel. Seven years before he died, he wrote in his journal a now famous quote, and it says this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Union with Christ. By faith, we give up the things that we couldn't keep anyway to gain what we can never lose. Faith is finding your identity in Christ.